Rusty Quill presents. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary Freaknik: The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com/results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com/results. Terms and conditions apply. Rafael Muslani didn't even want to become a novelist. He didn't love art or the humanities in school. He didn't care for anything in school. He just plodded through it, hoping it would eventually end. He plodded through four years of undergraduate school after that because he picked up on the cues from his parents that he was supposed to. He doesn't even know what he got an undergraduate degree in. There are just question marks where the degree name is supposed to go. It doesn't say Bachelor of Arts or Bachelor of Science on his degree. It just says Bachelor. He doesn't remember his graduation ceremony. Surely he would have sat with other people receiving the same diploma as himself. The whole four years was just a blur. Friendships and dormitory life make up the majority of his memories. They were fond memories. He didn't remember classes. Maybe a memory of being too tired to focus at 8 a.m. on Friday here and there. He always sold his books back to the campus bookstore. He got a job that merely required a degree out of college, not one that required a specific degree. Rafael Muslani hated this job. There are no specifics to this job either, just like there aren't any for his educational career. He could feel himself being whittled away his whole life. Every day, waking up into these hazes of unenjoyable activity that were expected of him, he lost a little bit of time that could have been spent somewhere else, even if they were spent somewhere less fruitful. Playing games, hanging out, sleeping, getting high. They would be a better use of his time on this earth, he thought. He didn't have hobbies. He was never told that he was supposed to have hobbies, so he simply didn't have any. It had never occurred to him to be interesting, to be a character. That was something that he appreciated in others, but no one had ever sparked it inside of him. 
Writing wasn't even something that he had ever considered doing before he wrote down the words that would become his first chapter in his first published novel, Treading on a False Memory. Published and unpublished authors are gritting their teeth at the idea that this incurious guy could get his first fictional words he had ever put to paper into print. Fuck Raphael Muslani. I worked hard, and my novel still got rejected, and I'm still unhappy. What could even be inside of this book that would warrant so much clamor? Treading on a False Memory is about a guy named Jake, who starts off the novel with complete amnesia, naked in a white room with nothing in it but himself and his body. There are no doors or windows. It's unclear how he got into the room in the first place. The novel is told from Jake's first-person perspective, and he spends some time in the first two chapters mulling over who he might be and how he might have ended up there, a blank slate inside of a blank slate. Honestly, it rubs me the wrong way how calm he is. He is curious, like an alien visiting a new world for the first time and calmly ascertaining what interesting things might be going on. But Jake is in a horrific scenario, literally the sort of situation that might induce horror or being in a horror story. I'm not sympathetic to any character who might wake up not knowing who they are or where they were, naked, not even exhibiting an inkling of fear. It's not human. Jake sits there in his imposed ignorance for exactly 23 and a half pages, the half page being the page break that ends the second chapter. The first chapter page break goes entirely to the end of the page. At the end of this half page, Jake stands up, walks to the wall directly in front of him, gives it a good once-over inspection, and tears through it with his hands. The walls were all made of paper, thick enough that he couldn't see through to the other side, taut enough that it appeared to be a normal wall, yet thin enough that he could rip through it with ease. And with that, he was free from the white room with no doors and no windows. In front of him, Grand Central Station, New York City. Jake is, of course, still naked. In a sort of biblical manner, he becomes aware of his nudity once he realizes that he's in Grand Central Station and begins to feel fear and shame. It's like any nightmare you've ever had where you're out in public nude. Grand Central Station, Jake quickly learns, is an awful place to suddenly be stranded without clothes. On top of being a place where hundreds of thousands of people go every day, there are dozens of shops and none of them are clothing stores. In a panic, Jake rushes up to a person conveniently wearing a trench coat, snatches the coat, and runs off as fast as he can. From there, the novel centers around Jake and his search for his forgotten identity and why he was in a paper box at Grand Central Station. After panhandling for some money for clothes, he returns to where the box was, only to find it missing and a mysterious man standing by in its place, clearly related to the incident. The man takes him to a coffee shop, where he reveals that Jake had just been the result of an extraterrestrial video comedy program, whose title in English roughly translates to The Temporal Identification Challenge, though the alien understanding of each of those concepts is wholly different than the human understanding. When Jake asks who he was before the challenge, the man tells him that it's better to not try to figure out such a thing, that he is who he is now. Then he hands Jake $55,000 in cash in a brown paper bag, stands up, and leaves. Jake wanders the city, gets a hotel room, and tries to settle in a bit while figuring out who he is. He finds a girl that finds his naivete and curiosity charming. They hit it off and eventually he stops staying at the hotel and moves into her house with her. She gets a kick out of explaining Earth stuff to him. Like an alien, he has no understanding of any of the culture that she shows him. Eventually, they consummate this relationship in a gentle and sweet way. One day, while she is in the shower, Muslani writes a lot of novels where the main thrust of the second act happens around a girl in the shower, I don't know why. He decides to sneak into the bathroom and surprise her. 
He gets naked, the first time this is actually described since he woke up naked in the white room, and silently creeps into the bathroom. Once in the bathroom, Jake discovers the girl's skin hung up on the towel rack, and a being with shimmery silver skin in the shower. He is unable to keep himself from exclaiming, and as soon as he does, the skin suit snaps back over to the creature. The girl steps out of the shower, looking forlorn, as if something vital had just been destroyed. They make eye contact, and she disappears in the blink of an eye. Jake lives in the girl's house after that without her, paying her rent. Despite everything, Jake still loves and misses this alien. From here on out, his sole drive is to find her, and communicate to her that he feels no ill will toward her deceiving him, or for her kind wiping his memory and making him play an alien game. Like his time in the box, he sits in the house pondering for a long time, delivering on what to do next. Eventually he comes up with a plan. He goes to the craft supply store and buys the materials necessary to build the white room. Thick white paper, staples, a wooden frame, all of it. He returns to Grand Central Station and the spot where the room was created in the first place. Painstakingly, he recreates the room perfectly. His time spent in the room meditating and observing had paid off. Passers-by ask him what he's doing, and he tells them that he's doing a project for a video program about aliens. The New Yorkers are too busy and too good at minding their own business to intervene. After hours of work, he finishes the room. He is standing on the inside with no way out except to break through the walls. Without breaking the walls, the girl appears inside of the room without her human skin suit. She is beautiful, sleek and shimmering in the white room. She is silver with green eyes. This time, she is so large that she has to hunch over to fit inside of the room. She looks down at him. He starts crying. He doesn't know why. She says, I'm sorry, but he can't tell if she said it out loud or if she had spoken the words directly into his brain. Before he can react, the chapter ends. He wakes up in the room, naked, without any memories. He is in the box from the beginning of the novel. The end. Honestly, it's not so bad. It's better than a lot of the stuff that Maslany wrote after that. It reminds me of a band's first album. Often it's crude, the songs are simple, the production is whatever they could afford at the time, but it ends up being better than anything they are able to thoughtfully piece together after that. This is Muslani's first album, the one before the eternal sophomore slump that is the rest of his work. I left out some of the stuff that just doesn't work because it doesn't ever intersect with the plot. For instance, there's a fly in the girl's house that he swears can talk to him, and it makes funny little quips all the time that I found grating, to the point where I had to put the book down more than once. Muslani isn't funny by nature, and his humor doesn't come across well in the books. They would all benefit from less quipping and more getting to the point. Muslani's uncle works for a major publisher, so once he got a readable draft done, nepotism did the rest. It was a New York Times bestseller instantly, and rocketed Muslani and his unique vision to stardom. This was the first time that anyone had ever accused Muslani of having a unique vision, and he was fond of it. People were asking for interviews with him instead of asking him to remind them who he was again. He became obsessed with being a unique individual now that he knew that it was possible and was getting so much positive attention for himself. For his first TV interview, he dyed his hair purple. Sometimes he would speak in a strange accent even though he natively spoke a dialect of American English. He would wear pants whose legs extended far beyond his own, billowing out behind him as he walked and causing him to have a strange waddling gait. This hyper-individualist mindset of his is how he ended up with the largest cat in the world. The search for the largest cat in the world took hundreds of hours of research. This was time that he could have spent writing, but Muslani didn't care because writing wasn't something that he cared about. 
Having the largest cat in the world wasn't a huge honor, and didn't convey much notoriety until Muslani put so much effort into finding it, and then so much emphasis on the cat in interviews thereafter. He actually couldn't convince the owner of the largest cat in the world to sell him the cat, but he did convince him to sell him a kitten, which he was assured would become the largest cat in the world after the elder cat had died. Muslani's kitten made good on the promise through Muslani's sheer force of will, if anything. He liked having the cat more than he liked the cat. The cat was fiercely protective of him, but he didn't show any special love toward it. He loved being seen with it. He loved letting it patrol the streets without him, where people would see the cat and know that it was Rafael Muslani's cat, the largest cat in the world. That's why he commissioned the largest leash in the world. That's why the cat and I met that night, when I emerged on the street, no past behind me. That's why it attacked me and was sent flying backwards towards its house by the elastic leash. That's why I'm here, on the doorstep of Rafael Muslani, following the leash in the direction that it pulled the cat. That is why I am knocking on the door. The white room has eaten up all of the space behind me. Unlike Jake, I am scared. There is only myself and Rafael Muslani's house. The cat is asleep inside. Rafael Muslani is putting his book down. He is coming to see me. I wonder if he can tell me who I am. I hope it's a character.